Hello, and welcome to the Interintellect Hostcast. My name is Linus Liu. The Interintellect hosts some of the most interesting conversations on the internet. We have dozens of intimate salons and events every week where curious thinkers from all over the world gather to talk about a wide range of topics, from philosophy to technology to literature. Check out all of our salons and join our growing community at interintellect.com. In this episode, I talk with Brian Gallagher about the many facets of religion. Brian is a writer and the editor of the Nautilus magazine, as well as the communications director of the nonprofit organization Ethical Systems. We talk about Brian's personal religious journey, what differentiates religion from cults, if a society of rationality is possible, and much more. And without further ado, my conversation with Brian Gallagher. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the podcast. Appreciate you for having me online. So I thought a great place to start was just for you to share your personal religious journey, since it's quite a fascinating one. Sure, sounds good. Yeah, so my religious journey, I don't know if it's super distinctive, but I, I wasn't raised religious. I think a lot of people coming out of religion were raised to be religious in some form or another, but I came to it in middle school, kind of an informal social way through friends. A friend of mine in middle school asked me to come to a mountain church camp affiliated with his church, and I had a great time. For whatever reason, I really connected to the message that a lot of the other kids were sending me about why faith was important to them and all the youth ministers seemed genuine and seemed to be good people committed and devout in a non-denominational christian faith this wasn't like catholic or calvinist or any kind of thing it's like a kind of a bland non-denominational so kind of a an easy entry point for someone who wasn't really familiar with christianity and at the very end they had a very emotional gripping rock music worship service and in the background behind the band were like clips of Passion of the Christ, that Mel Gibson movie that was like, you know, pretty gruesome and gory. But I don't know what it was about my middle school mind, but I really took to heart the message that, you know, there really was um, this person, Jesus, who you know suffered this horrible fate for my sins so that you know I could go to heaven and I really had this moving experience of accepting him into my heart. You know, so as the singers were singing, they were kind of singing, but also talking to the audience to just like, think about Jesus and let him into your heart. And it was very dark. And there were other kids in the audience who were standing. Like if you felt kind of moved, you would stand and sing along. And that I was grabbed by that moment. So I became a Christian then, and I get into high school. I was part of the basketball team, and I met some friends there who were also religious. This group of friends was more curious about being more creationist, more radical, kind of moving beyond the non-denominational version of Christianity that most of us were familiar with, particularly through the videos and sermons of this guy named Kent Hovind. And so through that, I became more of a creationist, and that took me to a more ideological version of the faith, where it wasn't about warm glow, good feelings and community. I still had that, but it was more of an emphasis on having this insight that people didn't understand what the real truth of Christianity was, you know, like 
to be true to Christianity, you had to actually believe in the literal truth of Genesis and not some watered down, diluted version where like you kind of, you know, fuss around with, with the language and you don't take it literally. But then I go to college and this was something I carried through in high school, but in college, in freshman year, I came back home for Thanksgiving break and I meet up with one of my friends, one of my creationist friends at home. And one of his friends from community college is there. He's from a philosophy of religion class. And um, he started having a, a genuine conversation with me. And then I, it came up that uh, I was religious too, like his friend. And he started questioning me and probing me about what the, the substance of that faith was. And I don't entirely recall exactly how the conversation went, but I remember being very engaged and enthusiastic and I remember particularly that whenever I would say something about my belief, he would say like, well, I don't think that's justified. Like, what's the justification for that? And I wouldn't really know how to answer that because the idea of justifying your belief with reason or logic never had really come up for me, especially in the context of talking about religion. And from then on, I kind of wanted to keep in contact with him because he sort of pushed me and challenged me in a way that I liked, even though I didn't like convert to atheism then. But we stayed friends and that having that in mind, when I started taking science classes like geology, I thought that I was going to pierce through the secular scientific reasoning about the ancient age of the earth with my creationism, you know? I thought this wouldn't be a problem. Like maybe I would, I would talk to some people in the class and convince them that this was all wrong. And there was even on one of the tests, a joking question about the age of the earth rubbed me the wrong way. But eventually the reasoning about plate tectonics and going out into field trips near the Pacific coast and having the professor explain to us how the, the geological features we could see there arose through all of these new processes that you could explain and observe over time. That was so fascinating to me. It kind of drew me in to more science. Eventually, I wanted to start taking philosophy classes to like do more questioning and further explore my curiosity. And eventually, uh, it came to the point where I made this decision that like I'm going to try to live as if there isn't a God. And I remember that moment very well. And I haven't looked back since. That's a really fascinating story. It, it seems like you really ran the full gamut from one end to the other and then back again. Yeah, I know that you've written quite extensively about religion in Nautilus, so it would be great to jump into where I find religion to be extremely interesting, even just starting from the definitions of religion. Obviously, I think some atheists will deride creationism and some of these more radical sects of Christianity, as well as other religions as, as cults or conspiracies, and want to get your take about how you differentiate between what's a religion and, and what's a cult. Is there an actual categorical difference or is it just a matter of degree? I don't see that there's much of a difference. Early in the history of Christianity, Christianity was considered a cult, you know, among pagans or among Jews. And after it, it you know, it, it blew up across the Mediterranean and elsewhere, it just it became a religion. I mean, and there's a big debate about the category or the concept of religion and how it's used, like people back hundreds or thousands of years ago don't understand the term religion like we do now. 
But I mean, the way I would define religion is a kind of you know, big category for various practices and beliefs that involve some notion of the divine or the supernatural and inform a kind of philosophy of life around those ideas, you know, have concepts of the afterlife and a good and bad place at the end and some creation story that starts the universe going. Yeah, definitely. I'm definitely really compelled by the anthropological explanations for religion and the, the social utility of religious belief or religious practice. But I want to follow up on something that you mentioned just now in terms of defining religion as either belief and or practice, wondering if one should take precedence over another. I definitely think that in certain religions, especially the Abrahamic ones, the belief in God is extremely central to religious affiliation, whereas for other Eastern religions or pagan religions is much more around the, the practice or the community. And so we'd love to hear your thoughts on what the differences between defining religion as belief or practice mean practically and also historically as well. Yeah, well, I mean... Nowadays, for instance, in the in some of the Jewish community, a lot of secular Jews, non-believing or atheist Jews, love the practice of Judaism and will you know, live a sort of religiously Jewish life without really believing in any of the supernatural stuff. Like my writing professor in undergrad was like this, and we had a lot of talks about religion and atheism and stuff. But he would say, you know, like, okay, yeah, I don't, I don't believe on all that stuff, but I, I love participating in all of the ceremony and the tradition. And perhaps that's because, you know, so many of my friends and relatives still are believing and they know I'm not, but I like to be there with them and participate. And to me, that's it's a fine way to live. I, I don't really begrudge that. But I think for the most part, and perhaps this is mostly true about Abrahamic religions, that the, the belief and the practice go more or less hand in hand, where you practice the various rituals and communal ceremonies because you believe in the things that the rituals and practices are there for, presumably. Yeah, I think for most people, they are perhaps two sides of the same coin, you might say. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess to answer my, my own question, I feel like, during most times in history when science hadn't progressed so far, it would be really inconceivable to differentiate belief from practice, that there wasn't this you know, separate sense of what is true and what people do. Uh, one, because there was, just wasn't that type of scientific method that could prove things to be true or false in, in the same rigorous way that we can now, as well as you know, people's communities were just much more limited and things that the community had done for generations just had this sense of solidity that I think in the modern world we've kind of lost. On that point, I, yeah. um, I wanted to, have you heard this quote from Marx about religion on, in his uh, contribution to the, to the critique of Hegel's philosophy of right? It really captures the, this, I feel like what you're saying about just how it informed and captured and shaped religion with kind of all of life and the way of thinking and feeling at the time. But he, he says, and this is the, you know, the famous quote where he says, religion is the opium of the people. But I feel like so many people are, know that bit of it, but it's taken out of context to mean something that it really doesn't. So he said, I'll just quote a little bit of it. He says that the struggle against religion is indirectly the struggle against that world whose spiritual aroma is religion. Religious suffering is at one of the same time the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. 
Religion is the sigh of the repressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of, a, of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. So that's where it comes in. And then he goes on to say, the abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. To call on them to give up their illusions about their condition is to call on them to give up a condition that requires illusions. The criticism of religion is therefore in embryo, the criticism of that veil of tears of which religion is the halo. So the, the criticism of religion isn't meant to make humanity kind of depressed and void of any meaning, but to break away from the illusory meaning that religion offers and realize the true meaning of human life without any reference to a supernatural realm that is supposed to offer ultimate meaning, you know, where we're supposed to look forward to an ultimate reward in heaven if we do all the right things, fear God and also love God, and are always anxious about whether we're going to end up in the place that we want to be. There's actually a recent study came out that confirms this hypothesis in uh, the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The, the title of it was, national religiosity eases the psychological burden of poverty, which is Marx's point there that it functions a kind of opium. So yeah, I mean, I just wanted to point that out that yeah, it's, it's like throughout, throughout history and for, for generations, people inherit this, this vision of the world and it structures and informs all of the, all of the core emotions that we value and the relationships we hold. When, when I was religious, I would see all my friends and other strangers around me as like, you know, potential brothers and sisters in Christ. That's just another way of pointing that out. Yeah, thanks so much for, for sharing that. And definitely, I think Mark's made my point in a much more eloquent fashion. I think my follow-up to that would be, you know, obviously, Marx is writing in a particular context of trying to basically switch out this, what he believes to be an illusory view of society for a truer view, but one that is no less teleological, which Marx then defines as communism. And mm -hmm. most people, I think, at this point would argue that Marx's view is equally illusory as religious and visions of cosmic reality. And so whether or not that puts us into an, an older perspective in which instead of trying to take off the mask, take off the veil of religion in favor of some objective pursuit of truth, that the best we can do is some type of illusion, a type of kind of religious false, falsehood, but that maybe we can be a little bit more selective to be less discriminatory, to have moral standards that are more in line with kind of our intuitions and our beliefs in human rights and whatnot. Like, is that kind of where you think we stand largely as a society, even if we don't really have that discussion explicitly? And is it even good or productive to have that discussion? Or does that kind of defeat the point itself? Like we can't have that discussion because then it kind of breaks the veil itself. And we're left with this kind of nihilism trying to claw ourselves back. Yeah, something you said that reminds me of um, something Plato talked about and having to necessarily construct some kind of national myth for the people where it's not necessarily true, but it's a, a story that undergirds the norms of the society. And these are the norms that are going to bring about the well-functioning society. And so, yeah, I um, think in Plato's Republic, it's called the noble lie. The noble lie, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't, I'm not 
convinced that we have to have some kind of noble lie. And I don't think that in order for us to have a well-functioning society, that we have to kind of promulgate a story that unifies us all in an unfailing manner. I think that ideally, we could raise the floor, so to speak, of, of education and maturity so that we can all live with being partly ignorant, entertaining a plurality of views and visions for what a good life is and what a good society is, and see that at least part of the good is discussing together what the good is. And the discussion goes on. We, we none, none of us will live forever. And in society, the only way minds get changed is for people to die. So I think that the, the aim is to come up with a way of organizing society so that everyone can participate in this discussion. And I think we're pretty far from that because so much of people's lives are just about focusing on the, the necessities that you don't have time to, to do this. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm definitely sympathetic and on board with that view in terms of trying to aspire towards a type of value pluralism that is at its core tolerant and respects individuals and whatever they might believe. But do you see that as being in, at least in practice, we can have debates about theoretically having a state in which religiosity is not in conflict with pluralism? But in in a lot of manifestations of religion and in strong religiosity, there tends to be a conflict with tolerance and pluralism. Is that something that you also see as a pretty inherent contradiction? And if not, what do you think at the margin would kind of improve things and help bring us closer to kind of what you want society to look like? Is it just about education and having these conversations or... Is there something more structural and and policy-wise that you might be able to implement and and move the needle on? I do think religion has to partake in in the plurality of of views and values and visions. Part of me suspects that religion will never go away because it's always coming into being in new forms, you know, whichever point of history you take. So you can't, as a kind of first principle, rule out people being religious. And I think that for whatever reason, someone who's religious might have a perspective or a take on some issue that might lead them to the truth. So we want as many perspectives on various issues as possible, I think. But I think the, you know, the wall of separation in a secular society that we have between church and state is necessary. You, I think that that has to be a crucial piece because if any religious dogma were to come to dominate, then it could be part of that religious dogma to rule out the plurality that we would want, right? So the point where religion has to kind of cede its ground or temper its ambition for an kind of all-encompassing coherent society is where it prevents people from thinking for themselves or professing to believe something that doesn't go with, you know, whatever religious dogma you you might be talking about. And that is a really hard balance to maintain, right? It's a kind of really tough equilibrium that requires constant effort and input and struggle in in the people, in the society to, to do it. I mean, there's always there seemingly always attempts to get rid of this you know, division between church and state that the United States has erected. And it's kind of a miracle that, that it happened, and especially 
you know, in the late 1700s, like when so much of the world was still pretty ignorant of science, like the scientific revolution was just beginning. And it's just amazing when you when you read that history that that principle was able to be instantiated. And there's a lot of stuff going wrong with America right now. But I think that if, if we can at least hold on to that, we'll have um, some optimism for the future. Yeah, for sure. And uh, just to clarify, I think more for myself than, than for you, I think that we're talking about two different spectrums. So one is religious to irreligious. The other one is dogmatic to tolerant or open-minded. And I feel like the correlation between these two spectrums might be greater than one, but certainly it's not one. And I did want to ask you about kind of how correlative is it for a religious person to be more dogmatic? Because certainly there you have you have atheists and non-religious people who are incredibly dogmatic or ideological and not open-minded at all. And on the other side, strongly religious people who are very open-minded and willing to talk and tolerate any number of beliefs. And yes. so I wanted to really draw out kind of what that connection actually is. And you know, if you believe that being open-minded and tolerant you know, is a moral good, you know, and then assuming that people will always be religious to some extent, or at least a certain percentage of the population, or most people will have some sort of religious impulse, is there a way to prescribe within religion or to create a religion that does promote open-mindedness and, and tolerance well, if we're going to use the definition that we raised earlier about involving some belief in the supernatural and a, and a good and bad place you might go to, I think that inherently that is a temptation to the dogmatic and to the theocratic impulses because it's something deep within humanity to, to want to live forever, I think. And if you want religion to be more open-minded and tolerant, I think you would have to kind of make it less of a religion in, in getting rid of supernatural beliefs, you know. And a lot of people, in my experience talking to religious people, they'll claim to be religious, but then disavow kind of the more extreme-sounding things today that we would associate with religion. And to get back to the point about education and maturity and being able to discuss things openly and critically and rationally, I think the data shows at this point that the more educated, economically productive, rich countries become, the less religious they become. And to the extent that religion is still subscribed to, it's a kind of attenuated form where the, the extreme forms or the the fundamentalist versions of religion are really rare and you know don't hold much of any kind of social or political power. So while I, I do still think that even in a you know highly educated rich country where you have people able to afford some leisure time and time to continue their their study even while they're working, say, you can have people at the margins who will kind of believe anything like astrology. People will still believe in astrology now or any number of, you know, weird supernatural things that, you know, wouldn't survive any kind of rational or scientific scrutiny. The products of science and engineering are all around us, yet people find it, you know, fanciful and entertaining to believe things that would totally contradict any kind of reasoning that would um, 
you know, produce the things that they benefit from, like, you know, iPhones and the internet. So I just think, I don't think we're going to get rid of that kind of contradiction, but we could do our best to attenuate the, the ill effects it might have. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, this goes back to the point that you made about, um, you know, quoting Marx and, and how religion is a really potent way of coping with poverty or, or strife or unfortunate circumstances. And in the grand scheme of things, it's a pretty adaptive system and adaptive you know, set of beliefs to, to deal with you know, certain circumstances. But you know, given the resources that we have and what we can now aspire to, given current technologies and you know, per capita wealth, that it may be more male adaptive than adaptive at this point. Is that something that you'd agree with? I think so. I, I don't think there's any real question anymore. I mean, I think that that religion was an adaptive cultural system. If you think about it in terms of cultural evolution, where bits of, bits of culture, uh, Richard Dawkins called them memes, but I think people who, like Joseph Heinrich, study cultural evolution, he doesn't really call them memes, but there are you know facets of culture, cultural practices and beliefs that can spread or not spread depending on how easy they are to learn and how helpful they are in solving adaptive problems that a people or a tribe or whatever face. And variants of each practice will come up, you know, in time and variants of different sorts of practices will com- will compete against each other via competition between other groups. And whichever group survives or is able to, you know, expand and you know, have another group assimilate itself into that group, then those practices will keep on going and, and spreading. And, you know, to the extent that this spread keeps on occurring, it is tempting and reasonable to attribute it to it helping people survive and reproduce. So, and there's, and there's also you know, gene culture co-evolution there. So certain practices will help people or aid people in, you know, surviving and having more children. So I think that is a very coherent, attractive explanation as to why every sort of group any archaeologist has ever studied had some sort of religious belief system. And the practices and the beliefs and the rituals and the prohibitions are remarkably consistent uh, across all these different groups. Like every, almost every group had some religious prohibition against incest or, you know, moral codes against theft and murder and so forth. Yeah, I think you can understand that in terms of culture evolving as a process that helps groups survive and reproduce. I think that makes sense. Yeah, I I definitely find that very compelling. Although at the same time, I think that the persistence of religion and religious belief or even just supernatural belief among highly educated and high earning populations would appear to contradict that in terms of, at the very least, these college grads earning six-figure salaries who believe in astrology. I wouldn't think that survival and reproduction is what's behind their supernatural beliefs. And I'm, I'm now coming from the perspective of viewing religions as resilient systems and systems that are actually more resilient than scientific scrutiny. So you know, if you're a rational being, 
once people believe in the scientific method and rational thought, religion religion should eventually die out. But I think empirically speaking, it does seem like religion and the religious religious impulse is in many cases more powerful than and rational scientific scrutiny. And that's kind of why you would see religious beliefs or religious tendencies basically in every single demographic, obviously probably very different. And kind of in that case, I would my guess would be that there is still this really strong impulse to find meaning or values you know, through, through religions, through something that can't be accessed through pure reason or science and whether or not you know that's an end game that ir- like secularism can really end up tackling i don't even know where, where the statement stops and where the question begins but what do you think about a religion that addresses the higher levels of the hierarchy of needs in terms of self-actualization and meaning rather than just pure survival and reproduction I mean, the first thing to say is that religion has the advantage of having been around much longer than any kind of secular or humanist philosophy in providing people with with meaning and purpose. So I think that the, the probability is just higher that when people find themselves bereft of meaning or you know, not knowing what to do with themselves, it's just more likely that they'll land upon a religious story as opposed to some some other sort of secular story because there just hasn't been as much time for secularism, if that's what you want to call it, to provide this sort of, I don't know what you call it, meaning structure to people's lives. But I mean, I can talk about it in my own case where, I mean, unless I'm fundamentally deceived about my own experience, um, I find that I have meaning. I find that I have purpose. Um, I don't feel depressed and nihilistic and I don't believe in any religious story. I, I mean, I get a lot, a lot of meaning out of, out of literature and fictional universes. Like I love Star Wars. Some people would argue that that's kind of like a a religious analog. I think Jordan Peterson recently said in in his interview with Angus Fletcher, who's a, a neuroscientist who studies story in the brain. He said um, Star Wars is just Christianity for atheist nerds. Uh, I don't know if I agree with that. I think that is way too simplified and kind of favors his his view of things. But I think that you can find meaning in trying to attain something you view as valuable. And, you know, how you come to view something as valuable, I don't think there's a kind of formula for it, but it's a kind of personal investigation into what fascinates you and what intrigues you and what you find you have an endless curiosity for, and then finding a way to pursue that. I think, I mean, to get back to the discussion about the level of civilization we have now, not everyone is afforded that. People have to you know, live out their lives grinding out a living. And it's very easy in when you're in that situation to find religion to be a powerful, useful way of finding meaning because you really don't have time to think about something new, right? Or something original, or you can find a ready community of people who believe the same thing. So, I mean, that, that has its positives and its negatives, of course. I think on the whole, it's mostly negative. 
Yeah, that, I think that makes a lot of sense. I can uh, reference the the article that you had written about how how Einstein reconciled his you know, religious beliefs with his scientific work. I think what he calls, and you quote, as a, a religious feeling can be explored and manifested and actualized without needing to contradict science. And that sounds like kind of what you've you've done in your own life in terms of really finding curiosity and meaning and value in your life without needing to you know, go into the well of existing religions and, and previous religious practices. You know, from everything that you've talked about, it sounds like you're really bullish and optimistic about your, your journey, obviously is unique, but everyone, you know, given the opportunity, the resources, the means, can go on that a similar journey of their own and being able to you know find meaning and value in their own lives without needing to resort to organized religion or dogma. Is that basically correct? I think so. Yeah. I mean, in that piece, I mentioned how Einstein believed in Spinoza's God, and Spinoza was a a 17th century philosopher who was excommunicated from his Jewish community because he had these heretical views about God and, and the Bible. And he you know, basically said the Bible is man-made, is written by people. Some of the authors of the books we think were one person, probably several different people. And you know, God didn't create nature or stands outside of nature. It's one and the same. And we are all part of God because we are all part of nature. And that was the sort of vision that Einstein had. And I think that is consistent with the kind of religious feelings people can have without them referring to any kind of supernatural being or realm where you can have an awe for our understanding of ourselves and nature. I think that is a source of endless joy. And I think trying to be able to experience joy as much as possible is, if not the meaning of life, is core of the meaning of life. And Spinoza talked about through our power of reason alone, you could access this almost boundless feeling of joy with the knowledge that you are part of the universe and are functioning in this uh, interlocking web of causes that you know, might as well be eternal. And if you can see yourself as part of that, then you can always remind yourself that like whatever hardship or suffering you might be experiencing, like you, you always have this source of being, of being connected to everything. And that for him, you know, did it. And I think, you know, it, it helps me too. Awesome. I think boundless joy and connection to everything is a great and optimistic way to end the podcast so it's been a real pleasure having you on brian and thanks again for having this great conversation appreciate you for having me online